Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. For episode 53 of the Intercooler podcast, uh, we've dreamt up what I think is quite an interesting topic. This is something that I've looked into quite a lot in the past because I'm just sort of fascinated by it. Um, we're talking about motorsport competitors who who compete across disciplines, who try their hands at different forms of motorsport. It's something that used to happen um, just as a matter of course back in the day. And now it happens, I think, much less often. Um, It's a cool topic, though, isn't it, Andrew? What do you think? I mean, there used to be a time where the likes of Clark and Moss in a weekend would compete in different stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was... I was looking up um, when I knew that this is what you want to talk about. I, I was just, I've, got, I've got a book which details all of Sterling's races. And I mean, on one, in fact, I've got it here. So on the 3rd of April, it's a good book, actually. It's called Sterling Moss, All My Races. Anyway, and it, it reveals that on the 3rd of April, 1961, he raced a Cooper in the Lavant Cup and won it. He then raced a Lotus 18 in the Glover Trophy, which is the big Formula One race. And he only came fourth in that for some reason. Oh, the engine wasn't working properly. He then did drove a Lotus 19 Monte Carlo in the Sussex Trophy and won that and ended up driving a DB4 GT Zagato in the big sports car race, uh, the Ford Water Trophy, and came third in that. That was all on one day. That wasn't one weekend. That was a day. With all the qualifying and all the other stuff that goes, which, which goes with it. And to him, that would have just been normal. You know, it would have been a good earner for him because he would have got money for every race that he did. Um, and he'd be sitting there thinking, well, you know, I'm going to be standing around watching other people race. I might as well be out there doing it. And that's just the way that... It, and they all used to do it. Um, how, much, and, how much would you have liked to have been at Goodwood on April the 3rd, 1961? It would just been great because it wouldn't have just been him doing it. They would all be doing it. Or all my heroes would have been there and they'd all been racing, you know, everything from little saloons to, you know, big Formula One cars and, and everything else. And... I do sort of think I understand why it doesn't happen anymore, but it does, it does seem a shame. 
Um, you know, I even liked it sort of back in the days, and I'm sadly I'm old enough to remember it when, you know, they suddenly did things like pro car, and they put all the Formula One drivers um, in, you know, the BMW M1s in support races, and it was just a bit of a demolition derby. And I liked it because it was different, and they were all in the same machinery and everything else. But I also just liked the idea of seeing who could do it out of their comfort zone. And just because, as as we know um, from so many examples, just because you happen to be, you know, the bee's knees in a Formula One car doesn't mean you're going to be great even in, you know, a sports car, let alone something like a touring car or a rally car or all sorts of stuff that we're going to go on and, and talk about, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, to me, it's really, really interesting. And I guess the question is, who's a better driver? Someone who does really well at everything or a person who simply excels at one thing mm, that's I a good i don't even know I, I don't even know there's an answer to it but it's it's, it's an question. interesting thing to sort of um you know roll around your mind for a bit so if we look back to when moss was um competing in four different uh, races different types of car at goodwood in the 60s in a single day i think what's extraordinary to me is that the skill set just required to drive was highly transferable across different types of vehicle um in a way that it probably isn't anymore. Uh, and I just, I love that back then in the 50s and 60s when he was really competing um, at the highest level, if you could drive, you could pretty much apply that ability to any sort of fast driving, couldn't you? It was, it was a skill set that just transferred across lots of different disciplines. Um, and there's, you're right, that there is something lost slightly from motorsport in... Uh, certainly the top level guys really just sticking staying in their lane you know they stick to their category broadly speaking and we'll come to all the all the exceptions to that rule a little bit later on Um, but there's just something so romantic about these guys in the 50s 60s into the 70s really competing in so many different types of vehicle it would have just been as a motorsport um, enthusiast it would have been just fascinating watching Clark race in a little touring car and then in a Formula 2 car and a Formula 1 car and whatever else. I just, I think it's such a treat, such a treat to the enthusiasts. So so do we think, I mean, we know that there are commercial reasons why this has happened, Um, but do we think there are actually also other reasons, something in the actual driving? I mean, what occurs to me is what has changed um, from those days to these is grip. You know, we now have cars with slicks and wings and, you know, enormous amounts of downforce. Um, and we know, just as an example, that even if it's just slicks, you know, when, when Sterling came back briefly in the early 1980s and drove an Audi 80 uh, on slicks um, with front wheel drive, he couldn't cope with it, um, apart from when it was raining. Um, and I just wonder whether if you're the certain sort of driver who excels in a car with, you know, which can develop four tons of downforce and 5g and and everything else is that such a different discipline does that require such a different skill set from that required to drive something with no downforce and not much grip like a you know like a touring car or that those skills are no longer transferable in the way that they were back then when you know everything was on you know skinny little bicycle tires and you know the air was something you seek to, to avoid not to exploit as as it does today i can't think really otherwise why it might be yeah that's that must be um a huge part of it i suppose there was a time where all racing cars would slide through corners 
And so if you could balance a car through a corner, maintain momentum without scrubbing off too much speed, you could do it in any type of vehicle, couldn't you? Yeah. And, um, you, had to sli- and you had to slide them because the tyre, I mean, the, 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 the tyre that they had at the time was, you know, the, the kind of ubiquitous Dunlop L section. I mean, that tyre doesn't work without a slip angle. So, you know, it wasn't that they were sliding because they were, you know, over the limit and battling for control and everything. Like that. They were just doing what, modern drivers do which is driving their car in a way that gets the most out of the tires and but back then you know the only way you could get those the, those tires to perform was to slide them um and you know that art that art is completely gone you know if a, if, if you're in a formula one car and it starts to oversteer your only thought is to stop it oversteering isn't it um or, or pretty much anything on on slicks these days um whereas back then that's what you wanted that's what you did and maybe they are maybe it's almost you know <sighs> It's just a completely different skill. It's almost like the difference between, I don't know, driving a car and riding a horse. Um, they are so different. Um, you know, you need skill and you need balance um, and, you know, an understanding of what's underneath you um, in both cases. But the actual process is so utterly different that maybe, as I say, the skills aren't transferable. But it's mm. a shame, isn't it? It is a shame. If you talk to the Franchitti brothers, um, they talk about, and this probably applies to everyone who's learnt to race, in the modern era, they talk about um, having been conditioned throughout their careers to, the moment the car steps out, tries to oversteer, what they want to do is get it straight back into line as quickly as possible because they know they'll be losing speed and momentum otherwise. And it means that um, it's so alien to them trying to slide a car around, actually trying to provoke it. It just feels bizarre to them. And that must be true for most, um, most sort of modern era racing drivers uh, so that, yeah you're right that is a big a big thing that's changed in the discipline of driving but from the 50s and 60s maybe the 70s um to today um but I, also but it, but it, it works the other way you know there, there have been times when i've gone and driven modern cars um with lots of grip and lots of downforce um and i'll go out and i'll drive it and i'll drive it as fast as i feel i can drive it i'll go back in and then you look at the data and they always say the same thing. They say, why are you driving the car like this? You know, you're going up to the corner, you're doing most of your braking in a straight line, and then you're turning in, and then for some reason your throttle trace is doing this, and you're, you're trying to do something, and why are you doing it? You, know, you need to brake it all the way into the apex and then accelerate all the way out again. It's not difficult. Um, because that's the way I've always... Because, because my, my history, my background has been entire, almost entirely in historic racing that's the way you need to drive those cars and you know they, it is such a different thing regardless of which direction you're going in slick tires and downforce really that's yeah. what's changed the driving style, those two things yes. <laughs> get rid um get so rid. Most, mostly we've been talking about um the sort of transferability of skills between circuit racing disciplines and you can i mean we do sometimes see formula one drivers get stepping into lmp1 cars um, or Formula E drivers competing in the World Endurance Championship. And you can see that there, there is a high level of transferability between um, a single-seater and a prototype because you've got high downforce, lots of power, and you're on a circuit. What is particularly compelling, I think, is transferability between circuit racing and rallying, particularly sort of loose surface rallying. Just before we get onto that... Can I just go back to what you were talking about before? The, the, the transfer, you know, you're talking about going from single seaters to a sports car. Um, you know, if you drive a top, you know, um, hypercar or, 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 or GT1 car or, no, well, no, not a sports car, but an LMP car, an LMP1 car, 
Um, you know, the forces on your body are probably quite close to a Formula One car. I imagine the experience driving the car, okay, you may be inside and I imagine, but you know, the way you drive the car is probably quite similar. But of course, what is completely different is you can't be a selfish bastard in a sports mm. car. Mm. Yeah? Because there's a bloke waiting in the pits to get in the car. And you can't be a superhero and ruin the car and just hand back a bit of wreckage to him because he's got to get in and after you. And so that requires a completely different mindset, doesn't it? Um, and, you know, and I've had, you know, I haven't had Formula One drivers say to me that, you know, what you need to succeed in Formula One is to be a completely selfish bastard because your teammate isn't the person you're trying to help. Your teammate is the person you're trying to beat. And the mindset is completely different, isn't it? And the, so the certain, the, the sort of, I mean, I, it's a question actually I've really wanted to ask Tom Christensen and hopefully he'll come on the podcast one day um, because, I mean, nine times Le Mans winner, um, you know, did test in Formula One car but never had a Formula One career. But he was obviously so well cut out for sports car driving. Um, and it's just the sort of person who might be able to shed some light on this. So it's not even enough that the cars are, quite similar i think actually in your in the mindset of the driver i think you need to be different people to excel in those sorts of disciplines sorry interesting interruption. no rallying. it's fine <clears throat> do you know what we'll come back to rallying in a moment because i wasn't really going to talk about this on this podcast but i might as well yesterday i spoke to fernando alonso i'm sorry you kept that to yourself <laughs> yeah it was <clears throat> um via video call with a handful of other journalists um through Alpine, because they're racing in Bahrain this weekend. Actually, this podcast will go out after uh, the first race of the year. Um, And one of the things I wanted to know from him, because it's been, what, three years, maybe four years since he's raced a Formula One car. But since then, he has raced at Indy. He's raced at Le Mans and in the World Endurance Championship. He's won both. Um, He's done the Dakar. And I wanted to know from him if those experiences might make him a better Formula One driver. Um, and he's, he's insistent that it will. And one of the examples that he gave was that at Le Mans in particular, you have to be a team player. You have to consider the, other, the bloke who's about to get in the car after you and the two other guys as well. You have to work collaboratively. Um, and he thinks that that can be applied to, even to Formula One, um, where you want to work with your teammate to some degree in terms of data and setup. Um, Do you? And, well, that's but if the, you're but, but, but if, okay, if if you're not as quick as him, which is I think is probably going to be unlikely in Fernando's case, but you know, if you're you know Albon, I'm sure you know last year, I'm sure you would have loved to have seen Max's setup sheets. Um, but it, if it's the other way around and you're the one with everything to lose, and it's your teammate who's not as quick as you, who's, got, who's the one who's got everything to gain, why would you? You're only going to do it if you're if if you know if if the boss man comes on the horn and says, you know, show him what you're up to. I, you're probably right in practice. I suspect um, he might say that there's always something to be learned from the other bloke. Yeah, um, yeah. If it's <clears throat> if it's to do with tire management or whatever, there, there there will be something. And it was it was just interesting to hear Fernando Alonso talk about working collaboratively because when has he had to do that throughout his career? We know that he and Hamilton had a falling out back in 2007, and their yeah. their garages went separate ways, didn't they? Um, yeah, they did. They absolutely, big time. Yeah, um, and so yeah, it was just, it was really good. Do you remember there was that sort of ad campaign of them at, at the beginning of the year, and they were all they were absolutely best buddies. Mm. And by the end of it, then they couldn't talk to each other, could they? <laughs> and so maybe we we now see a different Fernando Alonso because 
he understands what it takes to race at Le Mans. He understands what it takes to compete in the Dakar. Um, yeah, I, do you know what? I will tell this story because it's quite amusing. One of the other journalists asked him, Fernando Alonso has a reputation for being difficult as a teammate. Uh, what do you say to that? And Fernando just went, I laugh. And then for five seconds, he stared down the barrel of the camera without saying anything. And he just, and he just said, it's total nonsense. And he said, this is the third time I've raced for Renault, now Alpine, but it's the, the third time he's been a part of that team. He said, McLaren had me back. He said, when I got knocked off my bicycle um, a couple of months ago, my former teammate, Jarno Trulli, offered to go to the supermarket for me to do my shopping. Um, and he says, he says he, he still speaks to plenty Jarno of Jarno with his trolley. Yeah, he's still drifting Jarno around. Jarno Trulli, the, go on. Yeah. <laughs> drifting around the aisles, no doubt. And um, yeah, and he says he still speaks to Jensen. Uh, and he's on good terms with most of his old teammates. So he rejects the idea that he's... He's sort of this pantomime villain who none of his teammates were able to get along with. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I got I had no idea you were doing that. Mm. Yeah, it's quite good. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll stick something up on the intercooler on Instagram. It'll be up there by the time this podca- po- podcast goes out. Um, I've probably given away the good bits already, but there we go. Um, anyway, so, <clears throat> yeah, I was going to talk about rallying because yeah. it, it seems as though the skills transfer from circuit racing to rallying should be even less than between circuit racing disciplines because the surfaces are different. The cars are different. You've got pace notes. There's someone else in the car next to you. You know, it's, it's almost a different thing entirely, isn't it? And yet there was a time where, I mean, we've spoken about Sterling already, but he used to compete in rallying. He came second in the Monty one year. Yeah. Um, and another example I want to give, well, we know, Jim Clark was a good rally driver. And Vic Elford as well, a great example. So he won the 1968 Monte Carlo Rally in a 911. And a week later, he won the 24 Hours of Daytona in a Porsche 907. Later that year, Later that year, he won the Targa Florio in a 907. And then later that year, he entered the French Grand Prix in a Cooper um, and came fourth in his first F1 race. It's pretty remarkable, really, isn't it? I think it is. Vic is an interesting case in point because you think, oh, there's a rally driver who, t- who, who turned his uh, talents to circuit racing and did really well. In fact, Vic always wanted to be a racing driver and he only did rallying when he was, when he was young and got into rallying um, because it was just cheaper than circuit racing and you could go and rally almost anything, almost anywhere. Um, and then obviously once he started racing, driving for Porsche and rallying um, and you know they were they were competing on both um, in rallying and and sports cars. Then he was able to make the transition. Um, but if we look at the, oh, I'm sure you'll 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 have this in front of you, uh, incidences of rally drivers doing circuit racing and vice versa. What can we learn from that about whether rally drivers are better racing drivers or racing drivers are better rally yeah. drivers? <clears throat> okay, um, Sebastian Loeb is a good example. For my money, the greatest rally driver ever, and he. <clears throat> He perhaps wasn't necessarily the first. I know our friend Marino Franchitti will be listening to this. And he'll if I dare say that Loeb was first to apply a circuit racing driving style to rallying, he'll send me a text message saying, nope, that was Richard Burns. Um, and who knows, maybe there's someone before him who did it. Uh, so hello, Marino. Um, but anyway, Loeb, he did apply a circuit racing um, uh, style to rallying and he won nine world championships because of it. Um, 
and he's done a fair amount of racing. Um, in 2006, he competed at Le Mans with Pescarolo and came second, which is <laughs> that's no mean feat, is it? Yeah, um, that is no mean feat at all. However, he, he raced in the World Touring Cars with uh, Citroën for a couple of years, um, and he won a handful of races, but never the title. Um, and so here's this, the greatest rally driver ever, for, me, for my money, with what's recognised as a neat, um, accurate, precise driving style. And he wasn't able to apply it to circuit racing to a world championship winning standard. Um, no. I mean, that is, that is a Let very, it- very high level. But, yeah, but it's, it's not just a world championship winning standard. It's a multiple. It's a back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back world championship. It's where you are at a level in your preferred discipline, where you are so much better than anybody else. You know, pretty much, if you don't fall off, you know, the best anybody else is going gonna, is gonna to be able to do is come second. Um, and so the gap between that level and, you know, winning the odd race in a touring car is so enormous, isn't it? Even though if you were... You know, someone who hadn't got that history and you won the odd race as a touring car, people will think you're a pretty good touring car driver. Um, but actually, it just goes to show that the gap between the preferred discipline and whatever it is that you choose to then go on and do is, I mean, it is almost these, it is almost unbridgeable, isn't it? Mm. These days, yeah. And th- there's another example with Loeb. So he, he competed in World Rallycross for a couple of years. Um, he won two rounds. So similar to his World Touring Car Championship, won a couple of rounds, but never won the title. Never finished higher than fourth in the championship standings in World Rallycross. And you'd think that the, the transferability between rallying and rallycross would be higher Absolutely. Yeah. than rallying and touring cars. And yet he wasn't able to compete at a championship winning standard again. Which suggests to me <clears throat> that every discipline has become a more highly specified and... Only by being a specialist in that discipline can you actually win championships these days. Um, and I think it's probably because the cars become more sophisticated. The driving style necessary becomes more refined, more honed, more specific. Um, so that transferring from one to another is, is incredibly difficult. Yeah, yeah. But it does happen, doesn't it? I mean, can we talk about Sometimes. Nico Hulkenberg for a second? Yeah, we can. So he was a Force India driver in 2015. Um, did Le Mans once with Porsche and won the thing. I don't think he'd ever done a sports car race before, did he? Had no. He? I, don't think he had, I don't think he had any experience in sports cars at all. No. And okay, fine. Okay, who was, he was obviously driving with, uh, with Nick Tandy. I can't remember who the third driver was. Um, Good question. Earl Bamba? But he obviously... It was. Well done. Well done. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. It was Alabama. Good on you. Well done. Um, and so obviously, you know, those guys are complete sports car legends. Um, and so he had a lot of help from them. So it wasn't all just him. But nevertheless, I mean, he was as good as them. Good as them. I mean, he wasn't exactly a passenger in that car, was he? He was right up there with the best of them. Um, and so he somehow was, was able to do it. I mean, the, the, the sadness to me, just thinking about what you were talking about, about these things becoming so specialist, is that... You know, you imagine you are someone like Lewis. Now, I think it is likely that Lewis will this year win more world championships than anybody in the history of the sport. And and the last possible suggestion that he is anything other than, 
you know, one of the very, very greatest. I'm not going to call him the greatest of all time because we've had this conversation before about not being able to compare across either. But actually, but definitely, with as good a claim to being the greatest of all time as anybody else out there. And you know, and I think at the end of that, given that there's going to be a big reg change next year, and who knows what might happen, and given that we know that he did think long and hard about racing in Formula One even this year, is, is he going to be thinking? oh, I'm going to go off and do sports cars or I'm going to go off and do indie cars or is he going to think, I'm just going to get my ass kicked because I'm a Formula One specialist and we know that all those people who have those sorts of experiences, well, not all of them because as you say, Fernando was able to um, to do very well in sports cars but the potential of just being not as good as you were and somehow your legacy, your reputation suffering as a result when you let's face it you don't need the money why are you going to do it you're just going to go well see you guys never get in a racing car again unless you're one of those guys and they, they still do exist who don't you know people who race to race not to win um and they race because they love racing and they'll race until they're and, and, until literally no one will give them the racing car anymore because it defines them and, and uh, but i don't think that someone like lewis is going to be like, like that at all he's going to be He's going to have uh, his music. He will have his fashion brand. He'll, you know, he'll go and do all. There's so many other things he's going to go and do. Um, you know, he'll clearly be, you know, a campaigner for, you know, the issues that are important to him. Um, so why is he going to go and do indie cars and come fifth? Mm. If you l- listen to him talk about <clears throat> other forms of motorsport, he's. I think he's more drawn to two wheels than other uh, four wheel vehicles. Um, I mean, he'd he'd get whooped, wouldn't he? In uh, at a, a well, at, at whatever standard. he would be at, th- at 36, 37 in MotoGP, having never done anything like that before. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely don't believe that um, even Lewis would be able to no. um, get on top of that. It's no. just, it's just too, even for a card-carrying superhero like him, uh, it's just mm. too much of an ask, isn't it? Um, back to Fernando Alonso. So another thing I asked him was, so you know, you've got your F1 titles. We know your one of the greats. Um, you've gone well at Indy. You've won Le Mans, won the World Endurance Championship. Why is it that you've not been able to leave Formula One alone? And he said it was because this time last year, the biggest challenge available to him was to return to Formula One. He said he, he could have done Indy, but that's one race. He could have done Dakar, but that's one. Um, and the biggest challenge presented to him on the table in front of him was to come back to Formula One. And he's, he just seems like one of those guys who, who wants to test himself in a car to the highest standard possible. And that, for now, happens to be Formula One. Yeah, but I think he's also a bloke who just loves racing. I think he is a... I, mean, you know, I think that Lewis is a natural-born... I mean, he's clearly a natural-born racing driver, but Lewis is a natural-born winner. I think Lewis is motivated by the winning. I think that's what Lewis really, really wants to do. Um, I'm sure Alonso does too. But I think more than that, I think, I, think, I think Fernando wants to race. Yeah, I said, is this about getting that third title that you really think you deserve? And he said, it's not that. It's just about the challenge um, yeah. of, you know, just... He, 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 it, it must be, because he must know, with the best will in the world, I don't think that there is, there is any credible commentator who would say that with the way things are in Formula 1 at the moment, that Fernando stands a, a, even an outside chance of... Of, of being a Formula One champion, certainly not this year. Um, you know, there are freak occurrences. You know, he might win the odd race. Um, I don't think so. So he's in it 
as you say, for the challenge. He's in it to be a Formula One driver, to prove to himself and to any of the other people that he's still got it, that he can still do it, and because he just feels the need to push himself. And that is the motivation. I absolutely believe he's not sitting there thinking, oh, you know, I could be world champion. Mm, it does seem that's the case, yeah. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we, I, I want to mention a couple of others who have competed across disciplines. Um, I, we, I should just briefly mention Sebastian, Sebastian Buemi because he's... Um, Formula E champion and he's competed in the WEC a lot and won Le Mans um, and in, it was in 2018-19 that the WEC season uh, sorry the, the Formula E season that he finished second in the championship there he won the WEC title and he won Le Mans um, that was with Nissan and Toyota so I mean that's quite impressive isn't it winning, um, winning Le Mans winning the WEC and finishing second in the Formula E standings all in the same season that's quite yeah. that's, that's, that's quite impressive that's pre- um, but, he, but he never quite managed it in Formula 1 did he? never quite managed it in Formula 1 yeah I think he had a good go in that uh, in the Toro Rosso didn't he and he was ultimately how, dropped how good um, and this is because I don't know anything about rallying but you do how good, good was Kubica in a rally car? I think there's a feeling that uh, he could have competed at the highest level in a rally car um, had he not had to, the accident yeah to an extent that Kimi Raikkonen probably couldn't have done um well, okay I'd, I'd have to talk to a few people a few people about this actually to really understand that but I think I think there is a feeling that he could have um made the grade in a rally car um but his his whole story it, it it's it gives us another um uh, sort of understanding of why Formula One teams Le Mans teams don't like their drivers competing, particularly in rallying, um, Kubica. Absolutely, we you know d- depending on how his F1 career had turned out, if he'd been in the right car at the right time, he certainly had the ability to win multiple races and a championship or two. Certainly, yes, he did. Yeah, if he'd um, had the right brakes, I think you know he would. I mean, let's put it this way: I think we all we could all name people who have won championships who are not as good as Kubica was at his peak. Mm. There's no, yeah, there's no question about it, really. And it was that crash and that horrible arm injury um, that he sustained that put pay to all of that. So, I mean, it's no surprise that we don't see top-line racing drivers competing in rallying very often because the risks are too great. Um, although, I mean, Kimi did it back in, what was it, 2010, 2011. He did two not-quite-full uh, seasons in the WRC. Um, it was when... So he, by that point, had won his title with Ferrari. He raced with them for a couple of seasons. Uh, and then they paid him a huge sum of money to make way for Fernando, didn't they? Um, and so he competed in the WRC for a couple of years. And this was when I was <clears throat> following rallying, world rallying, really quite closely. Um, and just looking at my notes now, he never finished higher than fifth in a rally. Um, he did almost two full seasons, not quite, and no podium. Um, I do remember, though, that he, he set a fastest stage time on Rally Germany one year on a, a super special stage, a spectator stage, so a shorter one, you know, around bits of a car park and, you know, around some so tarmac, city tarmac. streets. Tarmac, yeah. And it's not a long stage where, with lots of unsighted corners. The point being, his, his pace most notes... most circuit-like. Most circuit-like and pace notes were less of a factor on that sort of stage. So <clears throat> with that out of the equation, he was able to operate a world rally car as quickly as anybody else. In terms of sitting there, turning the wheel, doing the pedals, he could do that as quickly as anybody else. But when you introduce a very long stage 
and crucially, the the importance of pace notes. Um, he wasn't able to to compete with the top guys because trusting your co-driver, driving to pace notes, is a skill that you learn over many many years, um, and it's it's not something you can you can fake. You know, you you can't you can't force that in a couple of years. It really takes a long time to be able to do that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So, are we going to have a stab at who we think the most versatile driver of all time was? Yeah, we could do that. It's not going to be... Well, I suggest it's not going to be a recent guy, is it? No, it can't be. It can't be. I mean... I think, actually, I think the most versatile drivers have come from America. That's interesting. Um, because, because of the way that they brought... I mean, yeah, okay, so... Um, you know, guys like uh, two in particular, Dan Gurney, Mario Andretti. But there are lots and lots of examples out there. People who were who were brought up, um, and you know, there's dirt car, there's dirt track racing, there's stock car racing, and then there's NASCAR and there's Trans Am and there's IndyCar, um, and there's all that. And then they go off and they do all the other stuff as well. So you know. I mean, Mario is, an, is Mario's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, yeah, and, and also the other thing is, which, which I think is another form of versatility, which is longevity. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Mario's first and last appearances at Le Mans were 34 years apart. His first one was 1966. <laughs> his last one was in 2000. Just imagine the technology change in that time. Exactly. He was in a GT40 in 1966. And I can't remember what he was in in 2000. It would have been a... Well, I mean, he certainly raced, you know, Group C cars at Le Mans. You know, he came in 1995. You know, he came second overall. It's his great disaster because he wanted to be, you know, the next person after Graham Hill to win the Holy Trinity. So, you know, the F1 World Championship, the Indy 500 at Le Mans. Uh, and obviously he did the Indy 500, uh, win, won that in 1969, won the uh, F1 World Championship in 1978. Never won Le Mans. Came second in 1995. Um, you know over 30 years after his Le Mans debut in a courage, um, won his class, and he was only beaten by, um, by the McLarens uh, because they were running in a GT category with you know, a completely different set of regs. And I think that they'd slowed the prototype so much by just giving them you know, thimble-sized fuel tanks that no prototype could ever realistically win the race, and he still came second. Um, he did the Indy 500 29 times. I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, and yet, his early history is all in stock car racing. And yet, he could go and drive a Slicks and Wings ground effect Lotus 79, you know, the first car with proper ground effect. So, you know, you talk to people who were in that area, you talk to people like uh, Jackie X and Derek Bell, um, who in sports cars came from sports cars without ground effects to sports cars with ground And just, just what a complete... Um, change of mind, mindset you needed just to be able to get your head around what those cars could do. Um, and yet Mario could just get into, you know, the first Formula One car, probably you know, the first Formula One car which would pull, you know, four plus G through a corner. And he would just go and be quicker than it. When his teammate was Ronnie Peterson, who was no bloody slouch. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think Mario would get my vote for, for everything, for the sheer range of stuff that he competed in 
um, and the time in which he did it. I just don't. And also, obviously, the success that he had. You know, he won Sebring 12 hours three times. He won the Daytona 24 hours. I mean, basically, the only thing he didn't, he's like Sterling, the only thing he didn't win was Le Mans. Except he did win the World Championship, with the F1 World Championship, which not even Sterling managed to do. So, yeah. Mm. Unbelievable. Do you know what? <clears throat> the longevity thing is such an interesting point, something we should talk about a little bit. Um, yeah, and we see it in all forms of mo- in plenty of forms of motorsport. I'm thinking Ari Vatanen. He won <clears throat> the WRC title in 1981 in an Escort Mark II Escort RS 1800 rear drive, um, naturally aspirated engine up front, manual box, and he continued comp- competing as the regulations changed and changed and changed. So through the Group B era, and he won um, won rallies certainly through the Group A era, and he won. And I'd have to look this up, but he might even have carried on competing into the WRC era in the late 90s, when you've got active diffs, turbochargers, maybe even paddle shift gearboxes by that point, perhaps. Um, And real aero as well by that point. Uh, And so just think about how the machinery beneath him changed during his long career. That's, That's something that we should celebrate a bit more, isn't it? These, these people with real longevity who are able to adapt to new regulations yeah. and new types of technology. And of course, some can't. I mean, you know, an example I can think of is, you know, is Graham Hill, who started racing a Formula One in the late 1950s and was still doing it in the mid-1970s. I mean, that's, you know, amazing even that he survived that long in that sport at that particular time. But the truth is, is that by the mid-1970s, um, he just couldn't face not racing um but it, you know but he was you know a man who won the monaco grand prix five times two formula one ch- champion world championships by the end of it was you know he just wasn't fast anymore not by the standards that were required um at that time um but guys like mario and i'm sure vatanen um were still right up there and competitive um up until they they left the sport because i guess to them to be anything else would have just you know, would have taken the fun out of it you just don't want to be going mm. around there making up the numbers mm. okay at, at the start you <clears throat> posed a really interesting theoretical uh you said so who 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 is the best driver is it the one who's got seven formula one titles lewis michael or is it the one who's, who's competed in multiple different categories over a long period of time and been at the sharp end throughout? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Which way are you going? There's no wrong answer here. There's no wrong answer. <clears throat> okay, so who's the better athlete? Someone who wins the decathlon? Oh, good question! And is able to compete in, in various different disciplines? Or is it Usain Bolt, who just monstered sprinting discipline the sprinting discipline um over actually quite a a broad period of time um it's inevitable that we celebrate one more than the other isn't it because they certainly celebrate the bolts and the lewises um more than we do the i'm just trying to think of a famous decathlete daily thompson that's how old i am he's the only british decathlete i can remember um and the i guess the mario andretti's yeah you know the, the people who stay focused and do the most in one very, very narrowly defined discipline are the ones that um, get remembered and revered. But that doesn't mean you and I have to think that way. No, no, it's true. So I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I, there is something, there's definitely something in people who are adaptable and who are prepared to put their reputations on the line and try lots of different things. Um, okay, who do but, you admire more? <laughs> 
you, despite everything I've just said, for some reason I admire the specialist. The, Do you? The, the record-breaking specialist a bit more. And I, I don't actually know why that is, because it, okay. even, even thinking about it now, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to me, but that's just the way I feel. Wow, okay. So we disagree. There you go. Everybody who says that you and I always spend our time on this podcast agreeing with each other, I, I'm not <laughs> with you, I'm afraid. I, I will always admire a Mario or a Sterling um, more than I will. But that might also say because these people were doing those sorts of things, you know, at a time when I found motor racing, frankly, more interesting than I do now. Um, you know, I, okay. I, I really, really admire guys like Lewis who can be so good, particularly, you know, let's not forget how long Lewis has been at the top four. You know, this is, this is his 15th season of Formula One and he bloody nearly won the first one. Yeah. And he's still absolutely, 15 years Lewis has been, you know, the man to be out there. And, and I completely admire that. So he's, he's certainly got the longevity. And particularly as, as far as I can see, he's certainly not getting any worse and he might still be getting better. Um, but, but, but to me, the person, because I tell you what it is, to me, the person who can be quick in, you know, a touring car, a F2 car, an F1 car, a sports car, an Indy car, whatever, to me as a person who just loves racing for the sake of racing, just loves racing anything. I will get into anything and I will race it because that's what I love doing. And you tend to be better at the things that you enjoy doing. Um, that may that argument may not stand up to my most scrutiny, but in my head, that's kind of the way that I see it. Uh, whereas if you're someone who is just focused on one one thing, I'm just thinking you don't love the racing, you love the winning. And that's what motivates you. And I'm always and always will be more interested in people who love to race than people who love to win. Fair enough. There we go. Mark it on your calendars. We disagreed on something. Um, that's, there we go. It's a great topic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed, it's good. I enjoy talking about that. Um, Okay, well, we'll leave it there. But this episode goes out after this weekend's, the, the weekend's Bahrain Grand Prix. Um, so we just have to make our predictions here so that everyone can hear how terribly wrong we, we got it. I'm going with Perez for the win. <laughs> Sorry, why did I laugh? That's not, um, you know, inconceivable by any means. You mean you're completely wrong, obviously. Um, it'll be Lewis. Okay. Good stuff. All right. Well, well. Okay. 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 Just on the Perez front, at the end of the season, Max yeah. or Perez? Uh, Max. Max. All day will, long. Will Perez do better than Albon did? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, Seb or Lance? Seb, but not by as much as you think. For three reasons. I had this conversation with my brother yesterday. I'll now forget what the reasons are. Um, Firstly, um, Seb is not as... Uh, I, th- I think when Seb was winning all his, red t- his titles with Red Bull, I think the car was um, very good indeed. Secondly, um, I think that Lance is better than people think he is. And thirdly, I've forgotten... <laughs> I came okay. up yesterday I, I, I came up with a really plausible third reason why they're going to be closer to each other um, and not just because it's Lance's dad's team and therefore the team will be but I don't know there is a third reason but no so so I think Sebastian will definitely do better than Lance but not by as much as people think for three okay. reasons only two, two of which I can remember I think Lance will outscore him because oh. um, Seb hasn't yet beaten a younger teammate it's true it's true okay well, watch this space. Mm, there we go. We'll see how wrong we get it 
a little bit later on. Um, well, thank you everybody for, for listening or for watching. Um, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, and well, as you know, we've got loads more coming over the next few weeks. Stay tuned um, and we'll talk we to you We keep again on talking about it, but very, very, very shortly, we will actually start doing it, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> we will. Yeah. And we'll see you again next week. Look forward to it. All the best.